Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. It is June the 17th. This is Tim Shifley coming at you from the rainy, very rainy foot of Lookout Mountain over near the Alabama line up in the mountains. Uh, Welcome to the Kudzu Vine. And uh, those of you that have listened to this show before know that if I'm talking, that means that David is not here. David is on vacation this week, but Catherine's here. Good evening, Catherine. Greetings from Atlanta. And also with us tonight, we are delighted to welcome back an old friend. She's been with us many times. Uh, She's both prettier and talented than more talented than David, and we're glad to always welcome our great friend from the Democratic National Committee, uh, Commissioner Wendy Davis. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with y'all tonight. Now, and happy folks, Father's uh, Day to all. Oh, well, thank oh, yeah, you. I appreciate Day, that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it, 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 was a, it was a good one, by the way. I got to see my whole family. Uh, something I don't get to do very often, and it was it was a great weekend. Um, Good. Uh, those of you that listen to the show regularly also know that from time to time I do a segment known as Outrage of the Week. Normally I do that later in the show, sometimes right at the end of the show. Tonight I'm going to start the show off with it. Now this segment is known as Outrage of the Week, but... I guess I'm a little beyond outrage today. It's hard to even consider that I'm having to address this subject and that such things as this are happening in this country. For some time now, foreign children who have crossed the southern border of the U.S. unaccompanied by any adult have been detained in special centers set up all over the country Um, And also, uh, as we've seen on the news this week, uh, a lot of them in the border states like Texas. Many of these children have been released back to their parents or other caretakers like other relatives. These centers, of which there are about 100 now, have remained at near capacity while the disposition of these children has been slowly accomplished. But now... It turns out that a new group of children has been added to these centers, turning already crowded facilities into extremely overcrowded situations. These children are the ones that I wish to deal with right now. The Trump administration has decided to pursue a policy in which minors are to be separated from their parents when families are caught at the border entering the United States. In the past, other administrations kept these families together and generally deported them together if they had to be deported. On rare occasions, some minors were allowed to remain in the country if they had caregivers available. But now we discover that perhaps as many as 2,700 children have been forcibly taken from their parents, and about 2,000 of them within the last seven weeks or so and have been placed around the country in these centers. Their parents, even those who are asylum seekers, which this used not to happen, are put in federal prison. And you see, children cannot accompany their parents to prison, therefore they are taken away. The centers are woefully understaffed, about one staff member per eight children, The children have access to the outdoors for only about two hours in any 24-hour period. Most of the children have little or no contact 
by phone or anything else with their parents who are locked up in federal prisons. They operate meals and other activities in dorm-like conditions. For sleeping, they are assigned five to a room that normally holds four. They are normally separated by age and gender. And because of the new crush of minors in the system, tent cities and military bases are in the process of being set up to to use to detain them. An average of 45 children per day are being taken from their parents. So, this is now our policy. It is carried out while much of the outside world has no way of viewing what is going on in these places. In recent days, a few reporters, doctors, etc., have been allowed into view. At one facility, a United States senator was denied entrance because he wasn't on the, quote, approved list of visitors. Now, for his part, our president has been his bubbly, lovable self on this issue. I'm kidding, folks. I'm really kidding. Of course that means he's been tweeting. He typed, and I quote, separating families at the border is the fault of bad legislation passed by the Democrats. To, to that, I would like to reply. That's an outright lie. No such law exists. The Trump administration enacted this policy in April. They just made this up. And then there's our Attorney General, Jeff Sessions. He, along with other administration officials, want to prosecute these immigrants and separate the families as a tool to discourage further immigration. Now, the problem with that is that today Trump's people have produced not one shred of evidence that this is working or, or not working or, or anything. Uh, and, and when they're questioned with that, they respond by enacting further measures such as dismissing those who seek asylum legally out of hand. They, too, are going to jail they, too, are having their children taken from them. Speaking of Sessions, he actually had the nerve to reference a biblical passage as justification for all these new policies. He has the goal to cherry-pick Scripture as a justification for a partisan political move. And he uses children. Mr. Attorney General, I know you're a Methodist. I know you're a Sunday school teacher. How about acting it? This is just shameful. I, I suppose it was inevitable that this bunch in power now would do things like this. They want to enact a zero-tolerance policy on illegal immigration. But to use children to terrorize them in this fashion, one doctor who visited one of these detention centers said, we are better than this. Really? Somebody please prove to me that we're better than this. And, and by the way, the word we does not apply. Donald Trump did this, and the Republicans who run things in this country stood by and let him do this. And that last sentence was followed by a period. So Catherine and Wendy, uh, guys, where, where, where is this going, Catherine? You with me, Catherine? I'm sorry, I had you on mute. When, <laughs> so I oh, didn't interrupt. So I, I was saying, where is it? Where, where's all this going? I, I have no idea what the next, um, what the next pictures are going to look like, because um, the current ones are just heartbreaking. I did hear on Meet the Press this morning when Kellyanne Conway was on and boy, she's quite a, she's quite, quite something. Uh, She was defending it. And also of course, blaming president Obama for all of this, you know, they, they are endless in their blame of president Obama, but there is some uh, thought that this is like, they're using the, these children as leverage to get um, the Democrats to agree with them on some immigration legislation, which is just, you know, 
and it's Father's Day. <laughs> I mean, it's just hmm. shocking that that this is the um, these are the kind of methods that um, our our Republicans would use to try to pass some immigration legislation. Wendy, what do you think? Um, horrified is the most polite thing I can say about it, <laughs> right? And uh, I yeah. really. Um, I really, you know, Tim, again, calling it the outrage, uh, obviously not just of the week, but it's um, it, it's at a scale and a level and the the justification for it, it's, it's just mind-boggling. Um, you know, there's a lot of things we can disagree about, but I think we might have struck something that I, um, I can't see their side of it at all. So um, I'm going to... Well. Stop talking about it because uh, it's a polite show, and uh, the language I really want to use would not be appropriate. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it is. It is also a political show, and whether anyone likes it or not, although this is just a humanitarian tragedy, it's going to play out politically. We can see that already. This afternoon, Melania Trump even came out in opposition to this separation of children from their families. I wish she would mention that to her husband. Uh, But if this carries on, if no no comprehensive immigration bill is passed, if, if we keep seeing this tragedy of what's happening to these poor children played out every day on television between now and the election, how can this possibly be nothing but a disaster for the Republican Party unless they stand up and do something and stop Trump from doing this? I'm, I'm going to be interested to see um, if, if anybody does any polls on this, because I bet the, um, you know, the Trump base, as it as it. Um, grow smaller and smaller, even though they continue to support the president. I think it's dwindling. I bet they're, like, all for it. Well, and again, it's everybody is hearing the story from that different angle, right? And uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's like the birth certificate stuff, right? There are people still mm-hmm. who think Obama was from Kenya, and nothing yeah. you can say is going to change their mind. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be interested in seeing how they manage to to put a positive spin on this one. Uh, But we're now going to turn our attention to uh, probably the biggest story of the year so far, uh, other than this one, which is quickly becoming the biggest story of the year. And that was the uh, recent uh, summit between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. Again, we do politics on this show, of course. So uh, this this is going to play out politically, too. We did see uh, that right after the uh, summit ended, there was a round of polling taken, and people generally viewed it positively, even though most people thought, you know, not much got done. So, uh, Wendy and Catherine, uh, starting with you, Wendy, who who were the political winners on this, and short-term and long-term, and, and how do you think this will affect the elections? Well, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that foreign policy drives elections very much um to to be fair right um uh-huh. and uh, i think um people on all sides of the aisle would would love you know <laughs> to uh to lessen the the threat of you know the weapons they have in korea right um so uh-huh. it's it's an awkwardness i don't again it's the question of is it something more than a show and um you know, it, where the, will there be consequences that are beneficial? And I do hope so, right? Um, mm-hmm. But it was, you know, quite the juxtaposition in the same week 
that uh, basically, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but, you know, basically we were uh, castigating our, our neighbors and longtime allies, the Canadians, and uh, and holding right. up um, this uh, man who has done enormous human rights violations to his own people, um, you know, saying that he's someone to stage with and palling around with, right? Yeah. So, yeah, and Catherine, uh, you know, last week we were talking about the disaster that was the G7, and <laughs> that's a charitable way, uh, borrowing from Wendy, of, of, of describing that, too. Uh, so now we've seen the summit, and I saw mainly a dog and pony show, and everybody had photo ops, and there was a couple of photo ops, uh, that Trump wished he hadn't gotten caught in. And our media, North Korean media, of course, are playing this thing in two different ways. And I sort of think that Kim Jong-un couldn't lose here. He he was the winner just because he was there, just because he was shaking the hand of the President of the United States, made to look like an equal. The whole world got to see him uh got to see him smile and and all of this uh i think he was the big winner what do you think i completely agree with you i think um giving him any kind of um equal footing with the president of the united states is a huge win for him um i think and then in the the, the i think the thing that bothered me the most about the whole thing was when um our president got back here and was raving about what a great leader he is and how he respects (laughs) him. And then what did he say yesterday that he likes the way or Friday, he likes the way Uh Koreans like stand up and, and, you know, pay attention to what he's doing, that we should be more like that. I mean, these are shocking remarks from a president Mm -hmm. of the United States. They're just shocking. And I mean, the Korean, um, the North Korean, the environment in North Korea is uh, is a shocking um, dictatorship. And for him to praise his leadership while, you know, just, you know, hours before criticizing, uh, you know, our largest trade partner, Canada, and our longtime ally, allies in France, uh, and Germany is, and, and other countries was was really um, quite a scary uh, juxtaposition, um, and a, and just you know like bizarro U.S. and it's very it, it's very scary uh, actually. And I agree with I absolutely agree with Wendy. Anything we can do to um, limit uh, nuclear weapons in this world is really important. But I don't think we can trade our um, stances on human rights and um, civil liberties for that and then become buddies with this dictator. I mean, I I think Mm -hmm. it's a very fine line to draw. I I think there there may be a path. I just don't think that um, Donald Trump has the, um, the proper um, – tools to do that. I think it, it requires a great deal of dip- diplomacy and um, strategic thinking that, I, I mean, he may be Mr. Dealmaker, but this is not a deal. Mm. This is a long-term uh, building of a relationship that has to be balanced with our relationship with other parts of the world, which is why we don't normally have one-on-one meetings with dictators. We have, you know, mm-hmm. joint well, peace negotiations. So, mm-hmm. well, you know, the Fox News commentator, uh, you know, did a little slip talking about the two dictators, and uh, it really is, <laughs> really the the things how he keeps saying and tweeting admirable phrases about these dictators, and you know, loving the control they have. It's it's frightening. It really is just frightening. It's, it's frightening, uh, and it's you know uh, it becomes more frightening the more often it happens because it becomes um, 
not not normalized, but um, we all become numb to it. I mean, I don't, but I think the, I think you know yeah. you know we're like inside baseball people. But I think a lot of people are just like, oh, Trump will be Trump, or this. You know, a lot of times I hear, well, that's just what politicians do, and I'm like, no, that's really not <laughs> what all politicians do. No. Um, so I, I think that that's the fear I have is that we become. Uh, as a country, we, we become numb to all this shocking and um, disappointing behavior, and it, it it just you know it's a slippery slope. You 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 know, Catherine, you and I, of course, can very well remember when Nixon got off that plane in China in January of 1972. I. I remember distinctly my brother turning to me and saying, you know what, the 72 election is over right now. It was such a landmark moment. Um, and only a guy like Nixon could have gone to China at the time. And I think Donald Trump wanted this moment to be that kind of landmark moment because they were talking in the days leading up to it about the, quote, historic summit the historic summit. And then I read the agreement after it's over, and it's a classic piece of political theater. Yeah. It's an agreement to have an agreement. We know that nuclear nonproliferation negotiations go on for years and years and years. Kim didn't Lifetime. really agree to anything. We have leaders who have spent their lives doing this. Their entire right. lives trying to do this. Right. Their entire careers. And look at Sam. And, and you know, I was shocked, and and I'm sure the Pentagon and South Korea were shocked at the things that Donald Trump agreed to over there that he didn't happen to mention anybody before the fact. He seems <laughs> to keep doing that, doesn't he, Wendy? On every subject, he just all of a sudden tweets it out. There it is, and his, la- his staff is left to scramble to try to figure out uh, uh, a, right. a way to I mean, even explain this. He has done so much to disrespect the very difficult work of our nation's diplomats on occasion after occasion yeah. after occasion. And the and so this is just another example of it. But to me, one of the biggest slaps in the face element of it was, you know, they were trying to find time in his schedule to brief him before he went to make sure he understood the protocols and understood the complications and how difficult this mission was. And he was like, ah, I don't need to study for this. I got this. Yeah, I'll know in a in the first minute he said if if this thing's going anywhere and la di da di da di da, it 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 literally once again is proof that it's just not a good idea to grab somebody off the street and make them president of the United States. (laughs) That's what's wrong here. I mean, this 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 poor man doesn't have a clue. Not only does he not have a clue, but I consistently worry uh, that there's really something wrong with him, you know, upstairs. Well, you know, this, I'm sure I'm not the I don't only know if one you, that does either. I don't know if you saw this um, media scrum he did on um, Friday, but on Meet the Press today, they went through the things that he said. And, like, half of what he said mm-hmm. was a blatant lie, a blatant lie. Uh-huh. Like he said, he said Mike Flynn didn't break, di- didn't um, lie, and then they showed the tweet where he said that Mike Flynn lied, like three, six months ago, and then he, you know, said that. Um, I mean, he just had a whole. There were was a whole list of things that he just. I mean, it's the reporters that were on were just saying, you know, we never, we never, we know politicians, you know, for their entire careers. They said we know politicians you know, massage the truth and, you know, spin things, but they don't know how to deal with someone who just lies. Like, how do you even deal with that? How do you even ask the next question if what they just told you was, like, absolutely untruthful? Well, and my uh-huh. question is, how, how does, how does, how, how do so many people just go 
oh well. Right? Like oh, that, yeah. that's the part that's Trump even more Trump. stunning, yeah. right? Like Yeah. yeah. Um okay, you Here's know the sun is now gonna rise in the West. Yeah. Right? Like what? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's it again, it's well, just so puzzling. That there's it, like it's, it's like, like there's locked, no accountability. Yeah. It's like in the outrage segment. Or or I gave you the quote quote that Trump gave about the Democrats. Not only was that a lie, but it's like an impressive lie. He just made some <laughs> up and said the Democrats passed the law. No. No, they didn't pass the law. Nobody passed the law. No one's ever done this. It's a policy they just enacted in April. And he knows this. And then when he's caught doing these things, saying these things, sometimes even on video, he'll double down and say, no, none of that's true. Fake news. la di da di da And he's well, got I mean, that solid 40% with him. Well, I tell you, too, it's like I loved all the videos. Again, not that they have a significant impact, but all the all the videos of people responding to um, Obama's comments before he was president that he thought finding peace was important and he was willing to go sit down even with the bad guys, right? And uh-huh. everybody, you know, their hair was on fire. They were so upset. And now we have this diplomatic triumph in their minds <laughs> Um, from Trump over something they said, you know, how dare he? It's just, again, puzzling isn't the only word that comes to mind at the moment. But <laughs> Well, I, I know what the Republicans are doing, the elected ones at least. They're afraid of Trump. They're afraid. Of, yeah, look at, Mike, afraid look at Mark Sanford. That he'll, yeah, look at what happened to Sanford the other night. They're afraid that he'll get them beat, so therefore – They've got to walk this fine line between uh, reality and non-reality and be sure they don't say anything to offend his base because they've got to have his base to win. And so we're going to segue right now into one of those places that I guess Republican candidates are going to have to do that this year. And of all places, that's right here in our home state of Georgia because uh, races here have taken on a national significance that, frankly, we didn't expect uh, some time back, starting with Casey Cagle. Now, here was a guy who was anointed by the GOP establishment to get the nomination and breeze to the governor's mansion. Well, then he got less than 40% of the vote in the primary, and he's forced into a nail-biter of a runoff against a suddenly energized Brian Kemp. Now we have this story where Cagle admitted to pushing a bill he didn't support in order to punish a political opponent. There have been some competing polls from each camp. A nonpartisan poll, I believe it was Rosetta Stone, had Cagle up 48-41. Catherine, who's winning this race between Cagle and Kemp? You know, I I just I can't even tell. Um, I think. Hagel seems to be on the defensive because of this videotape and or this uh, recording with Tippins and then you know some of the, some other stuff. But then he's attacking Kemp on this some stupid loan he didn't pay back or something for some canola seeds or something. It was some crazy crazy situation. Um, I think. Cagle has much, a probably much better name recognition, so I think that's probably going to help him. He's also, I think, still got quite a bit, bit of money in the bank. So if he uh, decides he wants to, you know, dump some money into TV ads, he probably has m- more money to do that with than Kemp. But if, I don't know mm-hmm. what, you know, the, I think that the question is going to be what their ground game is. You know, how are they getting out their voters and what kind of um, – I mean, I don't personally think that 
um, endorsements usually help, but apparently I uh, was wrong about Mark Sanford because he was on Meet the Press today, too, and he said he'd never lost an election. It's the first time he ever lost an election. And um, it uh-huh. was very close, but he lost. And 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 it's, be, I think, in large ways because of that last-minute endorsement from uh, of his opponent by um, President Trump. So um, I think that, that there's it's going to be interesting to see how they do their ground game, what how much money um, Cagle spends on ads, and if he's wise, he should spend some money on ground game too. Um, and then what you know who comes down here to help which one? You know, are we going to see? Yeah. Who are we going to see? Yeah. Well, wait, I mean, is, is it going to be wait. Trump or what? Yeah. Wendy, uh, we have a nine-week runoff period. And I imagine this was originally installed, as it has been in recent history around states in the country, to make things tougher for Democrats, but uh, not so this year. Uh, this lengthy runoff period, uh, first of all, is it helping or hurting either Cagle or Kemp? Oh, it's 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 hurting both of them, right? And um, and I I think you know obviously we this race started off with everybody sure Cagle was just going to win it, possibly even win it without a runoff. I keep telling the Cagle fans, you know, dude didn't get more than forty percent, you know, sixty percent of the Republican primary voters. But it's against him, right? I mean, right. even if they liked their guy a lot, there was a lot of a not Casey yeah. in that primary. And y'all runoffs are all about turn off, turnout, and right. they're uh-huh. usually pitifully, pitifully attended. And so uh-huh. I would not. I, if, I mean, Casey Cagle doesn't need to be, you know, counting his chickens before they're hatched. Um, you know, I think it's going to be nip and tuck. It, you know, it may be you know, a razor thin margin at the end. And, you know, if they heard of a ground game, they need to get one uh, <laughs> if they want to win. Just, yeah. I'm, well, I'm enjoying well, sitting well. on the sidelines and cackling, right? And, uh, exactly. and seeing them just tear each other up. It helps, it helps us. And so far the only statewide runoff we have on the Democratic side is for state school superintendent. And, and by and large, uh-huh. that's just been – I'm really great for public school and public teachers. I mean, public school teachers. Oh yeah. I'm really good for public schools and public school teachers, right? They haven't, it hasn't degraded if you will. And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm feeling yeah. like we're you, you know, in a better place and they're spending millions of dollars that hopefully means they won't have quite as much, uh, as when they, whoever the eventual nominee is heads toward the fall campaign. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I see. I, I think during this nine-week period, this is the time. Like, for instance, Stacey Abrams can be focused on raising money for the fall campaign, getting around, touching base with some people, getting everything lined up. Uh, it's probably a blessing that 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 uh, uh, attacks on her haven't intensified because of the fact that we've got this nine-week period where Republicans are savage savaging each other and i was thinking in the case of cagle and kemp that i believe um kemp's supporters are more likely to come back and vote than cagle supporters are and i will not be surprised at all to see uh kemp win this runoff now the question becomes, who do we want to face? Catherine, <laughs> do we have a preference? I think I have a slight, just a slight preference to face Kemp. Um, uh-huh. Just because he's um, he's got some... You know he's he's made some mistakes um, that we can you know drill him on and uh, but it's only a slight it's only slight it would be it yeah would, I think Wendy go, go ahead Wendy no I was gonna say I I want us to go up against the one with the less money 
<laughs> yeah, that's always good. Well, that, that, I'm, but, I'm pretty sure that's going to yeah. be counted. Yeah. yeah. But, but, but make look, no guys, mistake, this year. The national, the Republicans are going to come and give money to oh, the Oh, yeah. We'll be the, out uh, spent, but I would just yeah. rather us, you know, have, go with the weaker We're in terms of the fundraising number, too. But, yeah. but, but this year, we are on the national map with this race. A lot of folks are watching this one. Uh, there was a WXIA poll taken uh, back on, uh, I'd say, May the 15th, sounds about right. And it was uh, a matchup between Cagle and Abrams, and it had Cagle 46-41. And so the question, and, and we saw that uh, Abrams got, or, or the Democrats got 48% of the primary vote, it's very high. Uh, and in and in uh, John Barra's race, the Democrats got forty nine percent of the vote. Um, and so the question becomes that we have to entertain: Can Stacey Abrams really win this thing? Can she, Wendy? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's, a tough, it's a tough. It's a tough road to hoe, um, and it's uh-huh. going to take a. Uh, a lot of things done right and uh, very little done wrong, right? Like tennis, you call them unforced errors. We need none of those, right? Uh-huh. Um, exactly. Because they're going to, they're, it's, it's going to be nasty and mean and hateful and ugly. Like, like we haven't seen, but the, if, if the national attention stays true to the form we've seen so far, we're going to have some national level resources that we haven't seen in the past for our race. I was really intrigued. Even our attorney general's race is making the national um, radar screen, if you will, right? The, the, their organization, right? Their branch of the, is the, you know, association of attorneys general, democratic attorneys general or something like that. They, they have our race as one of their, I think it's top six races in the country. And I think that's going to mm-hmm. um, possibly even move up the list because how our nominee, Charlie Bailey, is stepping up um, and trying to show that these transgressions that we've got, you know, Casey Cagle on tape talking about, he's like an attorney general, if they're doing their job right, would be, you know, pursuing an investigation and leveling charges about these kind of things. And, um, and I, I just anyway, I think it's an exciting time. Um, the national party has already put in uh, more resources than they ever have that are targeted toward expanding the state party's capacity to to have real conversations with real voters, right? An actual ground game, and uh, it's just very mm-hmm. exciting. Uh, now, Catherine, you know we've talked about this race a lot on this show, uh, and 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 we know the 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 river. Uh, that she's the current she's swimming against in the river. Uh, we've never had a female governor, much less an African American. Um, but but I was thinking the angle here is that the strongest current Stacey Abrams is running against in this state is that she's the Democrat in the race. Not that she's a female, not that she's an African American, not that she's going to break all of these glass ceilings, but that she's a Democrat. And we turn to persuadable voters. It seems to me that most of the voters in this state are either hardcore, straight party voting Republican or Democratic. Do we have enough persuadable voters for her to say erase a three or four point deficit and win, or is it going to be another one of those deals where she comes low within five points like Hillary Clinton did, something like that? Well, I think um, that um, Representative Abrams has been working for several years and probably longer to. Um, to in, uh, expand the Democratic voting base, um, mm-hmm. trying to get people who, you know, who haven't voted before or who vote irregularly to get um, 
to become regular voters, to become super voters, like we like to call them. Um, I th- and I think as well as trying to appeal to, um, you know, undecided voters who vote regularly, but, you know, like swing voters, I guess you could, we call them. Sometimes, they, you know, they voted for Obama, but then they voted for Trump, which, you know, I just don't understand that. But, but there, are, there are those people. Um, mm-hmm. So I think she, I, I think that, you know, I've, I've followed these governors' elections for a long time, and, and I've loved a lot of candidates. But I do think that um, Stacey Abrams has been, has a, has a more effective, and um, uh, winning, I, I say that in, in, in quotes, winning strategy than I think we've seen in the last couple of cycles. And I think part mm-hmm. of that is because changing, you know, between, um, well, you know, I think that we have a lot of that, a lot of it has to do with Trump because he's very divisive. And so we have, you know, a divided so we need to get those people who are angry to make sure they vote. But also we have a lot more tools mm-hmm. um, at our disposal between social media and, um, and tele- telephonic technology. So it's, and I think that she is, I mean, I'm not close to the campaign, but it's my understanding that they're using a lot of those tools. So I'm, I'm optimistic that she's got a great strategy and great people working for her and is really going to work hard to win this. And I think we all mm-hmm. have to join her, and, uh, and many of us already have, in assuring that win. Okay. Now, Wendy, let me lay this out to you. This is the way I see this race. I believe in order to win this race, Stacey Abrams, first of all, has to win just about all the African-American votes and it needs to vote in as heavy a numbers as they did in, say, the Alabama special election when they came out of the woodwork to vote. She needs to get over 80% of all other non-white votes. I believe that. I believe that um, turnout on election day must show that I'd say 38 to 40% of the vote must be minority voters. That being said, I believe she needs to get a larger than expected percentage of white voters, like 53% of Georgia residents are white, and getting 20% of the white vote is just not going to cut it in a statewide race anymore. All that added up, I can see her getting back to her 48%, where I'm having trouble is seeing her get more, therefore... I believe she needs one more ingredient, and that's a low Republican turnout. A- am I right about all of that, Wendy? I-, I think you, I think you have that pegged very, very well. Um, and it's it's the enthusiasm gap, right? We have we have to. Um, we know it's going to be messy. We know it's going to be ugly. Right. We know it's going to be expensive. We know that people are going to get clobbered with TV commercials, clobbered with phone calls, clobbered with mail pieces. Uh, and not just for, mm-hmm. you know, the, the race at the top of the ticket. Right. So you have all the statewide office mm-hmm. up. You have really exciting competitive races for the legislature. You have exciting competitive races in a lot of counties for county offices this year, too. Um, so there is a there is a lot of opportunity for the Democrats to win that enthusiasm gap. And again, if we play the cards right, that's where we gain that, that edge, right. That you're talking about that. Mm -hmm. So close that gap. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I think it's got to be a little bit of everything, right. And the conversation has to, in my opinion, the messaging, the conversation has to stay as much about Georgia as we can get it. Right. It's got to be Georgia, 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 Georgia. Um, If the conversation gets nationalized, as it often does, um, you know, that's that's where I think we have the greatest risk. Mm -hmm. Um, Catherine, let me ask you one of these. Am I right about this 
uh, <laughs> deals. I have long thought that the first thing we would win back would be the governor's chair, long before, of course, we ever flipped the state legislature or won a majority of congressmen or anything. But I'm wavering on that this year. I'm seeing a scenario where we could lose a lot of uh, statewide races, including the governor's race, but John Barra could slip in, down ballot, and win. And and it wouldn't surprise me at all. A- am I right in thinking that John Barra, somebody like him, could be the first can- uh, Democratic candidate uh, in years to win a statewide race? I hope you're wrong. <laughs> He's not getting my vote. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm not voting for him. I can't vote for him. He, he, his votes in Congress were horrible, and um, they were. I, I was very. And I've heard, I I've heard very, him speak, and and I thought I was listening to a Republican sometimes. But you yeah, know, I just I, that being, I was very disappointed that he decided to run. I wish he would retire. And um, I, I mean, I, I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say this on our show because we, we are Democrats and. We try to be um, unified, but you know he voted. He voted again. He voted for the. Um, he voted for Doma. He voted for torture. He voted against women's reproductive um, rights. He's he's just all. He's voted wrong on all on on many of the things that are very important to me. So um, I hope he's not the first one. I really hope it's Stacey Abrams. I, I really I'm. I'm I'm very hopeful and very optimistic about that. Yeah, Wendy, not just John Barra, but looking at all the down-ballot races, is it possible that one of the down-ballot Democrats could be the first statewide Democrat to break through this year? Uh, I I think uh, we have a a number of races where that is absolutely possible, Um, Uh um, particularly because of what Abrams is going to be doing at the, in terms of the ground game that her team is going to engender and the coordinated campaign is going to have. So you right. may have people who just can't stomach voting for someone they've never voted for before, right, in an African-American woman. But, uh, mm-hmm. but, but maybe, maybe you, you do get a John Barrow coming through or maybe – you know, we have an outstanding candidate for lieutenant governor. I have never seen a first-time candidate be as sharp as Sarah Riggs Amico. I mean, wow, she's something else. Uh-huh. Uh, I think you might she have is. some people paying attention to the public service commission race this year, right, um, with mm-hmm. all the stuff about Plant Vogel. And uh, so I think it's going to be very interesting to see uh, the the people. And they're, they all seem to be working really hard, and they all seem to be – working really nicely together, right? So, um, mm-hmm. so if we can, and we've got some congressional races that are g- going to be more exciting than they sometimes are, right? So, uh, so it's just mm-hmm. going to be a fascinating, it's going to be a fascinating fall and, uh, and don't count out those really local races too. So uh, it really All right. uh, moves a lot of those. Now, now um, we got about uh, 11 or 12 minutes left in the show, and I did want to save some time uh, for this subject because, Wendy, as uh, all our listeners know, uh, you are a member of the Democratic National Committee, and we wanted to talk about some things that's going on with the Democratic National Committee. As a matter of fact, I'm going to let you and Catherine do most of the talking about this, but I did want to ask an initial uh, question, and uh, that is uh, if you could address uh, what you think the changes in the superdelegates are, are, are going to do or whatever. Yeah, uh, so it's sort of anybody's guess still. That's the really fascinating and frustrating thing, right? Uh, there are now something like three or four different proposals. And even as a a very active and attentive DNC member, I haven't been able to get the the straight skinny on, you know, what we're leaning toward. Um, 
at the March meeting, we sort of kicked the can down the road and everybody was able to agree on something that said, you know, something very vague, like we're going to reduce the perceived influence of quote superdelegates, right? So the big thing we're all working on now is not calling ourselves superdelegates <laughs> because uh-huh. that's part of the problem, right? There's a misperception. People think of them as those quote superdelegates that a lot of people were stirred up and mad about. They think of those as like big shot, you know, highfalutin, you know, the, the giants. Uh, and, you know, the reality is the vast majority of those automatic delegates, folks like me, right? Like just regular folks who've worked yeah. hard as a volunteer for the party for years and have sort of worked their way up the food chain, if you will, right? From serving on their local party, serving on their state party, and then are elected to serve by their peers in the state party to serve on the national party. Um, also people who are automatic delegates are members of Congress and U S senators, right. And democratic who are Democrats mm-hmm. and democratic governors. And of course, uh, all the former presidents and vice presidents who were Democrats, they're <laughs> there too. And those are all sort of big shots, right. That they're very different than folks like me, but we're all in that same group that was castigated as, you know, being unfair, but I will I will tell you again that the Republicans would have given any of their limbs to have had superdelegates in 16 in their situation, right? And so although I understand that that there is a concern and it felt like, you know, these insiders were tipping their finger on the scales and there was unfairness, right? Like we need to work really hard to, to find a way to make a change. But I personally don't think that change is to say, that I don't get to vote. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, right. That, absolutely uh, right. That's ridiculous. So, so finding what that middle ground is, I'm, I'm not sure we've gotten to it yet. Um, but we, if we're going to change the bylaws, we have to, that notice of what that requested change has got to go out by the end, end of July, I think for our August meeting. So, um, so we'll figure it out in August or we won't, or, <laughs> I'm not sure how it's going to go, but, um, and I can get into the weeds about some of the proposals, but it, it's, it's, uh, there's definitely a problem there and it needs to be addressed, but I'm not sure the ways that have been presented yet are what we really need to do as a party. I don't, I don't think we should take the people yeah. who have worked hard and been dedicated to the party and have the long-term interests of the parties in their mind, right? That's why we're there. We're not there because of a particular candidate in that particular cycle, mm-hmm supposed to be about the party into perpetuity right uh, and to take those mm-hmm. voices and silence them i don't i personally don't think that's the smartest way to do it and uh, also Catherine, i mean I'm, uh, i also just one more quick thing I'll, so I'll i rep, i'm also representing the the democratic municipal officials we have three um seats on the dnc by virtue of that organization which i'm involved very heavily involved in and you know to to think that that those similar organizations, you know, the the county commission folks and the governor's folks, you know, that to think again that their voices shouldn't have weigh in on one of the biggest decisions our national party makes about who our nominee is going to be. I just don't think that's the right way to go. But again, that's me personally. Yeah. Jack, Catherine, I know you got a bunch of comments or questions about uh, what's <laughs> going on with the DNC or the election in 2020 or the convention or whatnot. So just, Jump in there and take over right now. Well, Wendy, you know, I have to say that I am always um, happy and um, pleased when I think that you are on the DNC. I think it's... Oh, that's so kind we, of you. Thank you. We all made a really good choice in electing you. I think you're very thoughtful and fair-minded, and um, I, I, it really, it really does make me feel like the party's in good hands, honestly. I'm not saying that just because you're here on the show tonight. I think about it often, and I'm very pleased about it. Do you think – I I, I only saw a headline this week, or was it last week, that – and I don't know if it was the DNC or – I don't know who it was – that said that you have to be a Democrat to be uh, on our – a presidential candidate. Do you did you see this too? I and did. It was what happened like, was is 
Yeah, it was a proposal out of the Rules and Bylaws Committee that was meeting um, and in conjunction with the, the National Party's Executive Committee meeting. Um, so that's the group that was supposed to be resolving these other issues about the automatic delegates, and uh, and they decided to add that. And so there are a lot of people who are saying that's just a slap at Senator Sanders and you know, my question is, like, I don't think any of us disagree that the nominee of the Democratic Party for president should be a Democrat. That seems like a hard yeah. thing to disagree I mean, with. Uh, the The question is, like, says who or how do you prove it or, you know, those kind of things. So, I mean, it's just about signing a pledge. You know, somebody could, you know, let, let's say, you know, Mitt Romney could decide next week and sign a pledge and say he's a Democrat now. Uh, I wouldn't be comfortable with him running for president on my side, right? <laughs> but um, right. So right. I'm not sure how how they would um, make that happen. And I am just so sick of anything that makes us look back to 2016. We need to be looking uh-huh. forward. I frankly yeah. think we need to be looking past 2020. Like we've just got to keep push, 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 and have a 20 or 50 year horizon. Not not keep relitigating 2016. Amen, sister. I say this all the time. Let's think about think about forty years from now, not four years. Well, I mean, we don't even think about four years really. We think about two right. years. I mean, it's a it's a two year cycle, and um, and that's why. Well, I, I want it to be. I, I want people to be paying attention to the city races too, and you know, and we're in the normally in the quote off years, right? So, I mean, there's a lot to think about, but we just we we need to stop. I mean. Any of our internal divisiveness, I mean, we're we're always going to fight a little bit, right? We're kind of like cousins, right? You're going to have a little spat here and there. But we've got to keep that internal bloodshed to a minimum. And I just think right now anything that gets us to not be talking about 2016 would be good. But unfortunately, that's still I, where we are. I, and, and that's where the chairman is. He wants us to get past this, and he feels like the whole conversation about the automatic delegates is still – a part of that 2016 conversation and he wants to move past it. I, I'm, I'm anyway, but, and I agree that Uh, we need to move past it. I just don't think we can agree on how we move past it. Right. I think that automatic delegates thing goes back to 2008 too. And there was a lot of talk about it then too. It was more divisive in 2016, but there was a lot of talk about it in 2008 too. I remember. Well, but if you think about what happened in, in 2008, right? Like, just think about, you know, our most obvious example for those of us here in Georgia, right? At the beginning of the campaign, which was back in 2007, right? Congressman Lewis was, you know, was signed up yeah. and endorsed Hillary. And then as the campaign moved forward, he later, and I know it was to much personal pain because he's a man of his word, right? Like, but he he switched and he, he went with Obama and supported Obama, and um, and that's the reality. You know, the reality is that none of these automatic delegates vote until the convention, right? <laughs> like it's right. It's not a done deal. Even if you know, ninety percent of them all said we're going to be with so and so, you know, they aren't actually with them until the convention, um, and that vote mm-hmm. happens. And yeah. so I think you have a situation. I try to make people think back to 2007 also about the John Edwards stuff, right? Like think about what a mess we would have been in if we had changed the rules and said, you know, everybody from Georgia, which Edwards did really well in, that, you know, that big percentage of people had to stay with Edwards. You know, I mean, it's anyway, it's just a, we have a good capacity to make things a bigger mess than they need to be. But <laughs> Well, you know, like you said, it's like family. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And thank you very much for oh. the kind words, Catherine. It's it's an honor to, to serve and to represent the, the people of the state. I feel like uh, I work really hard to, to make sure that the, the people on the state committee who were kind enough to select me, um, that they feel like I'm representing them well and, and, taking their their feelings to that national conversation. And with that, the clock... Go ahead, Catherine. I I believe you do, and and I'm glad for it, so thank you. And yeah, go ahead, Tim. Yeah, I was just going to say, unfortunately, the old clock on the wall is telling me that uh, 
the show is over for another week. Wendy, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you so much for uh, sitting in with us tonight for the whole hour. We uh, we always learn a lot from you, and uh, you're you're one of my very favorite folks I've ever met in politics in my life. So thank you so much for being a friend of the Kudzu Vine and for helping us out. Well, my pleasure. Always good, good to talk with y'all. Good night. Good night, y'all. Good night, guys.